Uh, before I introduce today's exciting guest, I want to give you all a bit of an update. A few weeks ago, prompted by some excellent reporting from Amanda Fries in the Delaware Online News Journal, we did an episode with our friend and comrade Hanif Salam. Uh, if you recall, the various civic associations and community groups in the Southbridge neighborhood of Wilmington, in partnership with real estate developers and some business interests, proposed a plan for a parcel of land uh, on the Christina River waterfront. Due to environmental restrictions after decades of commercial use as Diamond State Oil, no residential or mixed-use development could be done on the site, according to the Delaware Department of Natural Resources and Environmental Control. The neighborhood and the developers proposed a three-warehouse complex and redevelopment of the water's edge itself into a park with new trees and a walking path, bringing refreshed open space as well as hundreds of jobs. The city of Wilmington had other plans for the parcel and indicated that the zoning approval would not be granted. The zoning board removed this item from the last meeting agenda. But the podcast has learned community leaders and developers have now met privately with Mayor Przicki and his staff. And the mayor is adamant that the community's project will not proceed. It is clear that the citizens' desires do not comport with the Buccini Pond Group's plans regarding expansion eastward of the riverfront neighborhood and, quote, South Wilmington. I've always explained the situation this way. The connected developers who have been partners with the mayor for 20-plus years, stakeholders, have their own plans, and those do not include input from the community, non-stakeholders. What the folks of Southbridge want and the agreements they negotiate do not matter. As mentioned many times, the city annexed county land to build a new 76ers field house and sports complex. BPG, Mike Przicki, and company operate with absolute impunity when it comes to development, and they will bully and condescend to any dissenters. This is all to say, be ready. Within the next 30 days, it's pretty clear that the zoning board will deny the Southbridge community's proposal, and marking the fact that they do not care about one of its oldest and his most historic neighborhoods. Um, just like we always knew they didn't. So stay tuned. Um, keep, your, keep your ears out uh, for word on the street because um, we're not going to take this lying down. Hello, everyone. Uh, this, this is Rob from the Bunker Studio. Um, this is your Highlands Bunker podcast. Uh, Carl is uh, joining from a remote, secure location. A and our guest today uh, is Jason Miles. Uh, Jason is an activist, musician, a writer, and the co-host of This Is Revolution podcast. He has a new article out in Sublation, the online magazine, titled Remembering Woodstock 99. And I am very excited to welcome Jason Miles to the Highlands Bunker podcast. What's going on, Jason? Hey, not much, man. Hey, thank you so much for, for having me and, and, uh, and dealing with me. And uh, I appreciate that, man. Oh, oh, oh sorry about that. Well, I, I appreciate you dealing with me. I mean, you're uh, you're out there, man. You're you're you've you've started. That was kind of the first thing, I guess. Before we talk about getting into the podcast game, because I am I am very interested in that. And maybe we'll start that first. I know you were you were familiar. Or I came to learn that you were familiar with Michael Brooks. Um. And Michael was a huge influence on me. Um, and I think what you guys are building, along with Left Reckoning and, and other folks, Ben even, um, is just ca carrying on that tradition. And I just find it really cool that everybody kind of finds their own way to do it. Uh, you, and, you and Pascal have some really cool uh, rapport with each other. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, how'd that all get started? How, how did you meet Pascal? Um, okay, I'll give you the bridge version. And, and here's some news for you uh, and for everybody listening. There's going to be a bit of a TNBS reunion that Ben brought up the other day. Ben Burgess, uh, my good friend Burgess and I are doing a live show. So it's Ben Burgess. So it's Give Them an Argument, Left Reckoning, and this is Revolution Presents Give Them a Revolution Live. L.A. is going to be the first show that we put on together. Um, kind of did a bit of a trial run for the Sublation uh, launch in New York that went really well. Um, and my old booking agent from the music world has been following podcasts and Michael Brooks stuff and all this. He's in New York, and he helped me put together the New York thing for Sublation. He was like, I think you could do something. Um, where would you like to do something? And immediately I went to the West Coast. And that was one of the better TNBS shows. So for us to be able to have literally a reunion of like all the people that were there at the TNBS, uh, sadly, except for Michael, it's going to be really cool. Hopefully we should make it. Um, but I got started um, kind of through music. Uh, I've always wanted to talk to people. Uh, I guess this is the longer way around it. I sold cars for a hot minute as a very young man in the late 90s. And the first thing they taught me in selling cars was you should always be taking an application. I was like, what do you mean? They're like, you like talking to people, but just ask questions that should be on the application. Oh, hey, where are you from? Oh, where do you work? How long have you been there? Right? Um, so that became the way that I, I literally just talked to people like that. I, hey, how you doing? Oh, where are you from? You have an accent. Where's that from? I've also traveled all over. Right. You met Wilmington. I definitely played shows there. <laughs> Delaware, North Carolina. So, um, you know, uh, I, I like talking to people and I like hearing stories. And the music I was doing in my previous group called The Financial Music Phone was very emotional. So, and very party. And I didn't want to just take it to the major metropolitan areas where it probably would have been accepted more. If we would have just showcased in LA and New York and Chicago, maybe our musical careers would have been a little bit different. But I felt like there's something really arrogant about that, super, super snooty about that to assume that um, this type of music would be looked down upon in, in flyover country. So we spent a lot of time <laughs> in places that hell of bands were just passing up. But in doing that, you know, I was having these really kind of illuminating conversations with people. Um, so I always wanted to do a show thing. And then when we came back from the last tour I did with my band, Bitter Lake, in 2019, I had been telling these guys in the van. We, were, we did all of North America. And I was like, dude, we can do this. Let's do a show. And I, and I was living in, where we were practicing is where I live, and hella bands practicing. Slipper, Testament, Exodus. And then the guy that fixed my guitar fixed all the Slayer dudes' guitars. And like rancid. So we had access to all these huge acts kind of regardless of genre. You know, also, Lenny Williams from Tower of Power rehearsed there. So you name a genre of music, um, it happened there. I lived and worked there. Boots Riley filmed a lot of Sorry to Bother You there. So I was like, this is a great you know, environment for a show. And they were kind of like, no, oh, this is kind of good. 
you know. Like, like, why would you want to do that? So I started doing it kind of just on my own, speaking into a microphone to nobody. And then uh, because of where I went to high school, if you listen to the show or anyone that's listened to the show knows, a lot of the gifts are people that I went to school with. Um, a lot of cats went into uh, academia and and activism. Uh, actually, Nora Barrows Friedman, who works with the, uh, who's the editor of Electronic Infosada, um, is a classmate. <laughs> so she was the early yeah. on returning guest. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that, too. I mean, I, I get bits and pieces of uh, your background when you talk about, I guess, because a lot of these people, you know, you've known for a while. Um, but we always we usually ask like activists and advocates sort of like the circumstances uh, that they grew up in. Where did they grow up? What was it like and how that kind of informed what they're doing today, the, the types of the types of issues they take up, things like that. And, and it seems like. Um, you had a deep, you had deep experiences all the way through, and, and even your, you know, your high school classmates now either got into some sort of activism or academia, academia in the social sciences, for example. So yeah, that's a really, I mean, uh, you do you want to. And I went to a public high school. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I went to a public high school, brother. Uh, but I'm from. I was born in Oakland, California, but I grew up in a city called Richmond, California. It's you know, it's hood, um, and that definitely is going to inform your politics one way or the other. Um, depending on where you're from, I don't care if you're from uh, rural hood or urban hood. <laughs> it, inform, it informs the way you see the world. But because my father worked for a different school district that was uh, slightly more affluent, and not just more affluent, but it was the children of hippies. One of my classmates, Devin McDonald, his dad is country Joe McDonald. To give you uh, yeah. some sort of context for where I went to school. Um, so that was being able to see the dichotomy, excuse me, like where I was supposed to go to high school, I have a cousin that's the exact same age as me, and we would have started school on the same day. Her first day of freshman year, someone's brains got blown out next to her to the point where... That was that's her first day of high school. My first day of high school of seeing white people play hockey. It's very different. (laughs) It's a different world. But one thing that I am seeing is um, kids being kids because I still live in the environment where she went to school, right? So kids getting into trouble with drugs, kids getting into trouble with alcohol, which is a common occurrence in high school. I don't care where you go. The difference in the high school I went to is that these kids had parents that could support them in a way to say, well, we're going to put you in a program. The other way is I can't deal with you. Maybe the law can. If it gets too crazy, it gets too out of hand. Um, or the law is at your school, so if you get into a fight, like children do, um, the law is going to be here to take you away because we can't deal with you. You're incorrigible. I got into a fight with a classmate, like we all do. Cool. And um, the vice principal called both of our fathers, and our fathers came down, had a meeting, un- 
unbeknownst to us, called us in after they had a meeting already. And then both of our fathers was like, y'all is punks. Um, if you really want to fight, the principal just gave us permission to give you two boxing gloves and we're going to take you down to the wire and you guys can do without the Or you can act like you got some common sense to shake hands and go back to class. Of course, we shook hands and went back to class and we're friends to this day. But, I mean, think about those, being able to have those options. And some people can say, well, you had a father. I mean, my parents were still divorced. My mother did drugs, hard drugs, the majority of my life. Um, so the fact that the school wanted to have a diversion out before punishment. And this is in 1995, you know, 45. So seeing that definitely informs the way you see the world. You really start to see that there's two worlds. There's one for poor people. And this guy that I got into the fight with, he's black. My father was a lowly maintenance man. His dad actually was a detective on the Oakland uh, Police Department. So it's not a color thing at that point. Um, yeah. It you're just in an environment that's you're in an environment where the first thought is to sort of uh, to de-escalate, um, and and unfortunately, like you said, that's ninety five. We're roughly the same age. Um, I I think a lot of that's gotten worse uh, with with more po- more police in school. We call we tried to get them out of the district last year. We got voted down. Of course, they have a nice they have a nice euphemism for them. They call uh, school resource officers, so they call them SROs. It's just an armed cop in the school. Yeah, we got I mean, the same thing in Oakland. Yeah, 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 same yeah. shit. Um, so yeah, I think that and 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 of course, just everything from a resource and, and financial perspective is getting more. You know, is get, getting more uh, separated. And so yeah, I think stuff like that. Uh, is even more stark, but people just can't. I mean, the story you told about um, your cousin and you the first day of high school—it's—it's it's hard to get your brain around it. Actually, that at that same day, those two things occurred. Um, it, it, I mean, she's doing wonderfully with her life now. <laughs> Surprisingly, yeah. she became a stylist, uh, <laughs> which is really weird. I was like, "Why are you at Tom Petty's funeral?" She was like, "Oh, I'm a stylist," or I was a stylist. Oh really? It's so weird. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was weird. You have connections. All I love, I love your music connections, and all. I guess when you're on the West Coast, I suppose that um, you know it's just yeah, yeah. You can you can make those make those connections. Your cousin is uh, Tom Petty stylist. Yeah, just stylist to like old ass white. Well, before before we get off the podcast, I, I do have to come back to the original question, and I mention it only because so we've done over 200 episodes and I've talked to some like some sort of important academics that I've gotten like I don't want to say nervous but like I'm really focused on preparation and and everything and I so I I did have Pascal on um, to talk about uh, his piece when his first piece came out in Newsweek and it was like a hundred it was like our almost our 175th episode or something and I remember telling a friend of mine he was coming on and he was like really that's cool I said I'm I'm actually a little nervous. I was like, he seems like an intense cat. <laughs> like so, but 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 then when I hear you guys talk uh, over time, I'm like, 
maybe he's not. Maybe that's just uh, maybe I'm I'm getting the wrong impression, uh, or maybe it has has to do with like the rapport that you two guys have, or the way you guys work off each other. But uh, I love Pascal. He's the man. Pascal comes into play after I do an episode with a gentleman named Cedric Johnson, and Cedric said he had a good time on the interview, and he called up to Ray Reed and said, "Ray, you got to listen to this dude. I met him from Oakland. This was a really good interview." Ray heard it. I hit up Teray through Cedric. Teray came on the show. Teray and I definitely bond over music, and Teray is a fan of a guitar player from the city I'm from. And also, when he was able, uh, came by the studio. Poor man had ALS forever. A guy named Jason Becker. So if you're familiar with David Lee Ross, Jason Becker actually came in after Steve Vai, and he was going to be the replacement. Uh, he's the next Eddie Van Halen. Uh, and he got ALS at 20. Derailed his career. He's still alive. Uh, and he's actually recorded multiple years with the use of his eyes and you know, having other people play. Or so he's orchestrating. Um, so because Teray and I know Jason Becker, we kind of have a bit of a deeper connection than just um, sharing similar political views. And he said, I have this friend I think would be very good on the show. Why don't we come on together? That was Pascal. And then we had conversations back and forth. We really dug each other's vibe. And uh, we just kind of hit the ground running. And that kind of core group of people, Therese, Cedric, Pascal, um, is a learning resource for me, first and foremost. <laughs> and and also it's become a, a great uh, friendship. Um, and I think Pascal comes off a little, maybe the timbre of his voice comes off a little more stern. He's very succinct with the way he talks. He's got an amazing vocabulary. He's easier to reach than me. <laughs> he's easier to talk to than me. And he's literally more forgiving. So he's the nicer one of the two of us. But uh, I think he likes the fact that he's the Yeah, and again, I, I, he was great to talk to. And I, yeah. I, you see more of his personality come out. And again, I, I didn't even – that's why I, I – kind of chose the word intense because it wasn't even I didn't even have a bad connotation like I didn't think he was un, not friendly or anything like that um I just thought like you know I can't I got to be on the top of my game <laughs> and mm-hmm. uh, but but yeah it's the, the way you guys um and he's also open to uh he gets teased a little bit which is funny watching him oh, dude. <laughs> watching him get yeah. teased <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's me. And he gives us he gives it back. We all all four of us talk a lot together at the same time. What you see on air, we do at least three times a week. Um, and it definitely can't be aired. But uh, it's, it's a, a lot of teasing goes on on all way. And I love it when Pascal gives it back. He definitely gives a chance to give it back um, to me. Um, so, no, we have fun, man. Part of the whole thing is if you're not having fun, then who would ever want to be part of your left club? Correct. Uh, everybody's in. Um, you know, you got you to gotta make it entertaining and fun. 
we, we sort of try to do from sort of like from the Michael Brooks model, just tr- sort of try to do that, but on a local level here, man, just try to, you know, a lot of our, a lot of our stuff is, um, sort of in, I don't want to say in character, but you know, I, I, I allow myself to say things other people don't say about politicians here. Cause we're sort of like an insular little state. So yeah, we try to make it sort of, try to make it sort of entertaining, you know? No, no. Ben and I were having a conversation uh, the other day. Um, and, it was kind of about, and I think I'm going to talk to Ben about this more and get more in depth with this, but this idea that the left is an exclusive club and even the language sometimes can be off-putting. So how do you make this club that you want larger numbers of, right? We want some sort of political power so we can see um, certain progressive reforms that we want to see happen. If we really want things like health care forever, if we really think that college and even at the state level should be free if you want these reforms you're going to need power you're going to need to build cadre that's really hard to build when you have an off-putting word that's really how the people look at things too so um the show has to be inviting to the average person that might not be as politically involved, all of us are very politically charged post-Trump in some way, shit. So how do I get the passive cat? Not the cat that already has zero books collection. Not the cat that already buys whatever's hot on Verso or Jacobin. The cat that kind of knows, maybe even the cat that like listens to the show how do I get that cat that can be politically swayed to understand why these projects that we want to be a part of are good for them? They're good for society. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I sort of look at it the, the way that you put together the, the Woodstock piece or all, all the work you do. You, you put it in materialist forms. You know, you stay, you stay away from people who think the brand now leftists are pretty unique and they they sort of exacerbate their own problems but the the brand it's the brand itself is something that you get branded it's a political fight so your enemies are trying to brand you and so there's a way that you can approach that and and sort of dismiss it and then move on to materialist problems or you can sit and argue argue about you know your brand um, yeah, I, 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 I try to, um, I, I just had a conversation with two, two, uh, working class guys, uh, from, uh, from, from rural Maryland. Uh, and you know, they, they had a lot of stuff that they were mad about, uh, because they see it on TV. And I just had that conversation with them and said, yeah, but does it like, how do you think that that impacts your life? Like, what does that mean to you? Uh, and they really couldn't answer it. And I said, "Well, what is your? What are your other problems with X, Y, and Z?" And I said, "Well, what, what if I were to tell you that I think those problems that you said, I think that's your boss did that, or you know, or your the, the you know your your I didn't put it in these words, but because of your relationship to your boss and how you get your money and your relationship to all this, that's actually what's where what you're complaining about. And we didn't come to any kind of conclusion." Uh, but I think that's the way to do it. That's what you guys do on a consistent basis is is steer the conversation towards that because that's that's really and I think that because that's the most the most most people have that relationship to capital. 
you know, so, something like that. So if you can if you can break it down like that's the best of sort of the best thing you can do. Yeah. But I, I also wanted to mention before we take a deep dive into that, because I want to give enough time to that because it's 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 very interesting to me. I, I wanted to let people know about the other thing that you do is, is uh, the video essay. I think you have five or six of them up now. Um, they are they are dope. Um, I urge folks to check those out. We're going to link to them. Um, you use, you know, you use, uh, you know, clips and narration, uh, but you take a very artistic approach. Um, I think I mentioned this to you maybe online. I, I find it very sort of, uh, sort of, uh, Adam Curtis sort of inspired. There's a, there's a artistic nature to it that I, that sort of pulls me into it. So you choose a topic, but the style of filmmaking really holds my attention because there's a abstract nature to what you're looking at. Um, but yeah, I, I thought it was. I thought the personal Jesus, uh, the seduction of uh, philanthropic capitalism, was the best one, just because I think that that that's the one people sort of like when you tell them that the Gates Foundation's bad, and you have that conversation, uh, it's it's they, you can you can blow people's minds. Um, but that was a, that was especially good. How how long uh, how long had you been doing video stuff? It was just something that you wanted to get into, or had you done that kind of work when you were when you were doing more music? Um, we were kind of forced into doing our own video when we started doing music, and it never really was as good as we wanted it to be. Um, we did kind of live streaming, and then because when I first started doing music with my ex, it was just her and I, and we didn't have anyone else with us. We couldn't afford it. So getting footage was really hard. You have to like pull it from people posting it in random places on the internet, which is also hard. Um, and we would try to put stuff together to montage it, and sometimes we would try to, like, act stuff out. <laughs> it would always end up with me getting killed at the end. When I finally got a chance to, to try to make things interesting was, I used to do an audio-only podcast, so I wanted to clip certain parts of the audio, and I used to put images to it, and that was okay, and then I was like, well, what if I put moving images to it, and then Cedric Johnson had wrote this really cool piece on Huey Newton called The Forgotten Huey Newton. And I asked him if I could um, put images and narrate his essay. And he said, dude, go for it. And I did it, and he dug it. And then Pascal wrote a couple essays. So I think, actually, if you go to the This is Revolution YouTube page, the first thing you see is your John Wayne talking, which is a, a video essay of something Pascal wrote that I, I narrate. Um, as Pascal's um, kind of started writing for Newsweek more, and that stuff is pretty highly edited, and, and I say that in defense of the original source material that I've read, um, I started to write my own stuff um, and make images for it. So you get the punk and politics essay, personal Jesus. Um, Welcome to the Terror Dome about the L.A. riot. And there's a new one. Nice. That isn't out yet. It's still being made. And, and a filmmaker contacted me because what happened the last one I did on black exploitation, uh, it just it burned me out. And I also make little clips. And I've made 40 or 50 intro clips to the show, which are very mini video essays. They used to be a little longer. Um, 
And that, coupled with trying to do the video essays, we had to deal with zero books for a while. That's why we were doing so many. Um, I got burnt out, and I was also making new music for him. I was literally scoring each one and doing the show, doing all the reading. So a, a young filmmaker hit me up and said, I really like what you do. I'd love to help. I was like, if you really want to help me, if you're serious, like, I don't have any real money. I was like, here's an idea I have. Do you, if you like this idea, I'll narrate it. And the kid made music. I was like, you make music. I'll even let him score it. Um, and he had showed me his video work. Filmmaker. And, uh, and I said, but uh, I, I just let me narrate it. And even if you want to move around some of the narration, I'll let you do that. So he sent me the first two parts of it. And it's about this theory that I've been working on is that we're living in a moment of kayfabe, which is kind of the magician's code or the wrestling code that you never tell the secrets of what you're doing. You never reveal that it's all a bit. And um, I feel politically we're kind of in this moment, not so much that everybody's like Joe Biden and Donald Trump are sitting down comparing notes and working on scripts, but I think people are just playing their parts. And we don't really talk about our relationship to power. We never really talk about capitalism. We talk about politics. And politics, much like wrestling, is just becoming theater. Um, and people feel very comfortable to play their roles in the, in the, in the spectacle of the play. So we use Vince McMahon as the starting point. Um, and I'll, I'll, I'll send it to you on the a, on a personal tip. That you can oh, cool. see the first part. The kid did an amazing job at it. But uh, I basically compare these moments in wrestling and kind of the, the, at the same time the, the, the terms that we get in media because there was a moment where news was a loss leader financially. News was something that corporations did um, to show that they were good citizens. Um, look, I'm a good, I'm a good corporate citizen. I, I lose money on this stupid news you people like. Yeah. So, um, news doesn't become an emotional thing until uh, 60 minutes. And making news programming that has to hit on certain emotional triggers in people. And then, you know, Matt Tidy wrote a good book, and then we talked about to Kate Inc. that talks about kind of gamification. Um, and that's now how people relate to it. It's how people relate to information. You know, this is a problem. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 um, I've heard you talk a little bit about this. I'm so glad that a, a larger thing is coming out. Uh, because I, I say this all the time, you know, people... Whenever... A, a lot of times when I'm criticizing a politician, say... I'll make the statement that, you know, not only do I don't think they can do any different, they don't even know they can't do different. Like they're in the role, they're in a role to do it, to do a thing. And that's what they're going to be that thing. And you're not going to like, they, they, they're not going to give the game away. They're not going to break character. That's not what they do. And, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm excited to see this, uh, see this come out. So, so the big the, the big topic. Um, speaking of, of of editing and 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 Pascal's uh, stuff getting edited down, it's my understanding that we could have had a great title. I believe it was "Pieces for Sale," but who's buying? Peace, peace, uh, peace sells, but who's buying? It's a mega. Peace sells, album but who? Title, so. 
Okay, peace sells, but who's buying? So this is the uh, this is your essay in sublation on Woodstock '99, and I think it's just now called Woodstock '99. Um, but as I said, remembering Woodstock '99, correct? Um, yeah, you and I are approximately the same age. I'm a little bit older. My my 48th birth my 48th birthday is next week. Um, so I, the, the, that nine my 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 uh, my uh, that that time in the late '90s. Um, has hits a certain spot for me, um, you know. Looking back on it's very strange, uh, since simply because I've I've had some sort of a transformation in in my life uh, from like a hot tempered frat asshole to I, I guess I just hope like less of an asshole. Um, uh, but yeah, I, I don't look at it. I don't look back on it fondly, uh, but I remember it, you know, pretty clearly. Um, and I remember, you know, uh, when, when new metal came about, uh, but I, like you never thought, I never thought it was, um, you know, uh, a particular band or a particular thing that happened. Um, do you, do you want to kind of want to talk about the, um, you know, the concept of it? What, what, what you, what you wanted to reflect upon when you reflect upon Woodstock '99, you know the big, the 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 30 year anniversary uh, concert that they put on. Yeah, um, I watched both documentaries. I watched one documentary kind of on a whim, and then when I found out there was another one, I watched that. Um, and I've worked also in festivals as well, in big festivals, like Coachella, uh, here in Delaware. I was at Firefly. <laughs> I think oh, nice. 20, yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm proudly. I'm I'm proudly a Delawarean who's never been to Firefly, but uh, yeah, it's a big it's a big deal. I think I am I kind of aged out. You have trust me. If you're over 22, you've aged out, uh, and don't feel bad about that either. Um, but my problem with Woodstock '99 and the way it's depicted, and and why I felt that they were missing this point when we talked about kayfabe was, um, the '60s is positioned as being the righteous era and the 90s is positioned as being where society is kind of on this downward spiral and it's these gen x white frat boys that are the problem and because of you know you see sexual assaults they talk about all the sexual assaults woodstock 99 has four reported rapes woodstock 69 30 years prior Let's think about the time that we're in in 69 and the way women are treated when reporting sexual assault has one reported rate. Now, even though there's only four reported in 99, both documentaries say, but we know there were hundreds more. With Sock 69, you didn't even know there was a rape. You didn't even know there was dead people in Sock 69. People died there. And my problem was nothing changed from 69 to 99. 69, two venture capitalists put out an ad. What can we invest in? They met two big-time music industry insiders that wanted to build a studio. That's why you have Woodstock. It has nothing to do with peace and love. It has nothing to do with the counterculture. It was always about capitalism. Why was Woodstock 69 free? Well, once the hippies broke the barricade, because the ticket stands weren't even up, um, 
Michael Lang knew if he didn't let these people in for free, he'd have a riot on him. If this is the peace and love generation that brought money, keep in mind, they brought money. They knew they were going to have to buy a ticket. They brought money. Why would he then have to let them in free? Because the same streak of all about me libertarianism that runs in Generation X and 99 definitely runs in 69. So this idea that one is better than the other, that it's a generational thing, that it's a slight lapses of judgment, is really off because 69 had horrible problems with infrastructure. There was one shower for 300,000 people. That's insane. You know, so whatever problems you had in 69, you definitely had in 99. They just become apparent. 99, I felt, was always going to happen because this is what it looks like when capitalism gets to run amok. You see it in the real world. Riots don't just spring up because somebody got thumped up by the police. They're years of problems. And finally, that levy breaks, and then the people explode. Same thing for 69. They always had sanitation issues. They always had infrastructure issues. 99 was supposed to be the moment where they fixed their biggest issue. You know what that was? Entering and exiting. Yep, they put it on a, uh, they, they put it on a, on a Air Force Air base. Force. So they could, they could have more control of in and out and tickets and all of that. That's all it was about. A music festival is I want to lock you in a room. I want to lock you in a small city for four to three days and have you spend money for 24 hours a day. That's all it's about. Music is just a way to get you in the door. So don't ever think it's more than that. And Woodstock was never more than that. And they had a brand. Because they, they failed. Woodstock 69 is a failure, but because of the movie, it's a, it's a cultural success. Right. It is a financial failure, but it's a cultural success. They took the, the few people that stayed dealing with the brand out of the four promoters. They dissolved that company within six days after the festival because they got hit with 80 losses. So two of the guys, Michael Lang and one of the bigger investors, stay on, and they just kind of keep cultivating the brand. And damn it, it worked. Real well, 94 was kind of a watershed year for them because you have a resurgence of this kind of rock music with the idea of grunge, which is in the word grunge to media creation. It's these guys not wanting to call this music that they felt important punk. Nirvana is punk. It's hardcore. What does Chris Novoselic do after Kurt Cobain dies? He goes and joins Flipper. Right? It's, 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 it's Bad Brain. It's Black Flag. That's what Nirvana, and not all those bands, again, I don't think there's a sonic crew on that's what those bands are. Calling it punk culturally devalues it to a certain extent. It doesn't make it important music. So, grunge. Yeah, I mean, that's... Smart people. That's, that's, that's what I took out of this whole sort of exercise of thinking it back, because I consumed Woodstock 99 on MTV. Because I didn't go. I was that age where I was watching. So that's sort of how I consumed it. Um, f- rewind to 69. 
you know, the only thing I know is what was in the film and that my dad and mom talk about it. But as you said, that was because, you know, the way the media culture worked, you sort of knew it was happening, you knew it was a big thing, and then a year later the movie came out. And so that's the brand of it. Um, here, and I think a great point was made when you had a discussion uh, with your friend last week about it, how different it would be if people were able to video themselves at the thing when all, when all this stuff's happening. Because I remember watching on MTV and thinking, like, yeah, it's getting real wild there. Okay, okay. But when you're not there and you're only getting it through the people who are selling it to you, like, you're not, you're not getting the, the real vibe. And so, yeah, I remember Fred Durst is crowd surfing, and then the next night these fires start, and I'm like, this is kind of wild. But, but again, um, the, the full force of it, even though you're seeing some of it live, it was controlled through, you know, you're only getting it through a couple of different sources, what they want to tell you. And so, yeah, the whole thing is just a branding act. The only reason they're different is because it happened in a sort of a different media environment, and it was, it, that affected the way that it's looked at. But ultimately, it's the same thing. If if Soundgarden had a play and Chris Novoselic, Chris Cornell, sorry, the late Chris Cornell, sorry, um, had the same board and crowd surfed on the same board, what would have been the story? It would have been Chris Cornell controlled the crowd. And to honor him, they pet a, a pedestal of greatness <laughs> where he serenaded yeah. us with this. That's what it would have been. But Fred Durst, and again, let me preface this by saying I'm not a fan of Limp Biscuit. Corn's okay. You don't have to defend it. New metal's not my bag. It's not my bag. Either. But it's not my bag. I don't, right? It's not my bag. And so, uh, what I find fascinating is these people that were there, they hated it. Kurt Loder hated that music. New metal is the, is the other side of the coin from the teenage pop that was dominating the charts. It's your older brother's music, right? You, you listen to Britney Spears, your older brother's got corn. That's all it is. In the same house. And you bought it from the same Sam Goody or FYE. <laughs> In the same suburban mall, right? She was your, your older brother with the hot topic. <laughs> yeah, she was standing behind you in line when you bought it. Yeah, I think, and and right, yeah, I I think the other thing that that came clear, and this is something I watched one of the documentaries, not not both of them, but I, I did get the sense, and you touch on it as well, that there was this idea that, and it's purely, it's. It's purely a uh, a consumerism idea. Like if we paid, we we expect a a certain level of of service. And when you go in, and you know, you forget that in 1999, charging four or five dollars for a bottle of water was. I mean, it's still it's still robbery, but it was robbery on a, a very obvious scale. Like I remember hearing that that like while it was going on, or or getting reports, like maybe news reports the next day. Oh, water's four dollars, and a pizza's twenty dollars, or whatever. And thinking that that was absolutely the, one of the most outrageous things I'd ever heard. And that, that affects people's uh, <laughs> mood, you know, especially when you're locked into a place. Um, the weather's not great. The sanitation's not great. Um, and so there's a level of sort of consumerism bubbling up there that um, I think is important to touch on, too. And you, you, you mentioned it a little bit, too, of just the idea that you're there to buy stuff. 
That's why you're there. Like, that's it. You're there to buy like, stuff, right? And, and the, yeah. the thing is, the, the, yes, Woodstock doesn't quite know yet how to tell people they're there to buy stuff because we don't know what that looks like yet. I'm just sitting here in 2022 talking about 1999, but I have worked at Coachella that figured it out. Why did Coachella not have the same problems in 1999 that Woodstock had in 1999? First and foremost, the layout was very different. The layout was one of being able to walk around and actually buy stuff and do stuff. They took a layout from, a, I want to say, a kid's show or something. It was something to do with, not Disneyland, but it was some small kid's uh, like thing a nickel, that nickel, some, some Nickelodeon, some kid's TV. I think it was a Nickelodeon thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I think it was a Nickelodeon thing. And, and that layout made sense. And I said this earlier, I was on Doug Lane's show earlier today, and I was like, don't ever think that everybody's watching the headliner at the end of the night. They're buying stuff, merchandise, beer, food. People are consuming constantly. Even after it's over, they're consuming constantly. So it's kind of like a big mall, a big hangout where you just buy shit. And they didn't have that figured out in 1999 yet because I don't think they felt they needed to figure it out because I think they thought they had it all figured out with the military base A, merchandise village B, and they didn't really care about what was going to happen when it came to, to sanitation and, and water filtration because those are two things that have never been a problem for these guys historically. Even though these things have always historically been a problem, the first Woodstock had a horrible trash. That's why I found it so insulting. We had this woman that was like, I was at the first Woodstock, and I couldn't believe how these people were trashing the place. I was like, yeah, you could. Yeah, you could. That's literally what you people did at the first Woodstock. That's why there was yeah. any lawsuits. It's so, it's so odd, that, um, that selective memory, because the one thing, and again, they don't, it's not it's not presented this way and people kind of forget but it's a pretty famous story cuz it's in the movie at Woodstock 69 most people had left and so Hendrix comes out uh the last day and is playing his set and there there were a couple hundred thousand people there now there are 50,000 people so in the, all you see you see more trash in the field than you see people like so Hendrix is playing to a field of trash and so, like, how can you? And so, I'm, in my mind, I'm thinking, like, everybody saw that in the fi- in the film. They know what what happened. How can you say like this is anything different than what happened before? Because yeah, it's, it was the same. I, that when she said that in the do- when she said that in the documentary, that my, fir- my the first thought I had was the scene in the '69 Woodstock in the film where Hendrix is playing in front of a field that's just strewn with every mess imaginable. So the problem in '69 was that people brought sleeping bags and. Over and because of the mud, because of the rain day two, those sleeping bags were like cement. So they had just tons of sleeping bags. Think about that 300 plus thousand people, 400,000 people, whatever it was, left sleeping bags in mud that's now dry. So you have that, you have all the other trash that they left. Um, it took them over a week to clean up. They definitely destroyed uh, nearby farms. One of the lawsuits they got was because a cow stopped producing milk. So they were sued because <laughs> the farmer said, you made my cow stop producing milk. But, but you know, again, it's 
69 looks more like how we look at Fire Festival as a joke and had information traveled as fast as it does today. I think none of those bands would have showed up. Um, because you don't move a location in detail. And that's how Altamont works. The same exact thing happens in Altamont four months later. They have to change location last minute because of permit issues, stage is built too low, Hell's Angel punched out a guitar player for Jefferson Starship. They stabbed somebody in the crowd. There's a whole bunch of ass with them in, in Altamont. And we look at Altamont that same year as the end of the hippie movement. But the guy that gave you the, the shining moment of the hippie movement four months prior is the same MF that gives you, that kills it. It's, it's, just, it's a very fascinating way people like to look at the 60s or like to look at counterculture or to the hippies. Hippies, if you think about them, all, there's always this libertarian street running through hippies. I was talking about Lisa Teray Reed. I don't know if you agree with this, but that need for self-exploration. Um, the rise of the cult leader <laughs> happens in the 60s when you think about, you know, we can talk about Charles Manson, but that's not the only person that lived on the commune in the 60s, which is kind of a common occurrence. Um, so there's a lot of, I'm all about me. And even if you think about um, the way we look at marketing, now marketing is for lifestyle brands because we have to market to the individual. It's a very self-centered time. And what do these people then give us? in the 80s as far as even political figures. This is getting to the time of the neoliberal turn of the Democratic Party, hardcore with, with the influx of these Atari Democrats. So for me, when I think of what the 60s is to what 99 is, I never really saw that much of a difference other than the tie-dye was gone. You think there wasn't a bunch of white boys at 69 Woodstock? Last I checked, that's who went. You think there weren't in fraternities and college kids? Last I checked, that's who went. So why is it so different in 99? Why are the same white people in fraternities so vile in 99, but in 69, they're all good? I, I never really got that. And again, if they were so righteous and cool, then why weren't they understanding of their brother? He said, hey, man, I know you guys just broke through that fence, but I'm going to need to take six bucks. For <laughs> he knew that was off the table with these cats. Um, because had that have happened, and that show went the way it went, you know, second day they have to shut it down because they might electrocute 50,000 people because you have know, electrical lines in the mud they would have had the same kind of riot they had in 99. In 99, these guys paid for a ticket, and the experience that they felt that they deserved, they deserved, they felt, they didn't get. Why am I paying $4 for water? That's how much water is. He was fine with it until the money ran out. Don't act like $4 water was a surprise. You knew how much water was before you got there. You knew what everything was going to be before you You've been to a concert before. Anytime you go to a baseball game, them beers ain't more expensive than they are at the bar. Come on. The idea that prices were blown out beforehand, no, what happened was when people ran out of stuff, and this does not happen anymore, they were able to 
increase prices. That's why I was telling somebody, like, if you're, a, if, you, if you're having a conversation with your libertarian friend, who wants to talk to you about how the free market is this and that, and if you just do it right, well, look at Woodstock 99. Yeah. Perfect example. I have more money than you. I can buy more water. Ha ha. You didn't have enough water? I do. Guess what? I'm already getting screwed because Woodstock is charging me 65% and I had to pay for a spot to be here. Now I'm charging $10 for a bottle of water because I can't. That's the libertarian one. That's exactly it. Yeah, I mean, that's Capitalism kicking your ass. That's what's always funny because that's that's definitely an, uh, still a, an archetype is the, the libertarian hippie, you know, real cool. Go hang out, you know. They but they think that they, if you know, if they if they can get off the the further they can get off the grid, they just want to be left alone, sort of thing. And all all the complaints they have, all I mean, you notice, you I mean, you're from the Bay Area, you probably knew a lot of these folks. Um, there seems like there's quite a, quite a few of them. They sort of they they ended up right in that in that general area. Um, yeah, I mean, again, it goes back to the conversation I was having. That's what was working. That's what was working. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's like um, the, the the problems, you know, the issues you have are real issues. But the way you think you can get around them or ignore them or fix them are not correct. <laughs> you know, it's just uh, the more you get pulled into some kind of individualistic, you know, everything's catered to you as a consumer sort of situation, the worse this is all going to get. Um, and that's you know, that's just no question. <laughs> You know, like when we when we when we try to talk to our friends about politics or capitalism, and again, why I write these kind of things to be able to use as some sort of like example, because it's hard to to show. Like you can't start a conversation of talking about Uber. Not everybody wants to hear this. People like Uber, they need Uber, but they might not understand why they feel they need. You know, the model for most tech companies is to come in and destroy an easy to get in market and the taxi market pretty easy to get it because most of it's run by municipalities and um, there's a limit to how many taxis you can have in the city because well, I have too many traffic Uber comes in and goes we're just a platform I needed to get a taxi one day I couldn't get it and there's people that want to give rides there's people that need rides. Now, we had ride sharing in the Bay Area where people would um, park their car by the freeway, say, hey, I'm going to San Francisco, need a ride to San Francisco, we're all going to San Francisco. Um, if we all chip in on the gas and the bridge toll, it's cheaper and it's all good. We didn't even ask for that. That was just people. People trusting each other. That's all that was. Uber comes in, destroys that. Now, you don't need to share a car with a weird dude. <laughs> you can get your own private car if you want to for an extra fee and totally destroy the taxi industry, especially places like New York, where um, you have these drivers that have been killing themselves over the last four or five years um, on the steps of City Hall, even because it, you know, the, the medallion costs so much. You have a traffic problems in, in most major cities in, 
in America because so many people need to take Uber to get to and from. Sometimes it's cheaper than public transportation to take Uber than it is your bus or your or your subway. But that's all by design. What then happens when now you rely on Uber? We do this thing in New York. I got an Uber from the airport to the hotel. Or no, I was saying a hotel. They had me in a hostel. From the hotel to the hostel. That was $140 to go. I don't know how many miles it was, probably 20 miles or so, 40 at most. $140. That's how much that cost. What's the difference between that and the, and the water at Woodstock? You need it now. Oh, the infrastructure is corrupt. Hmm. I got them bottles. <laughs> What's hydration worse for you? That free market kicking your ass again? You know, describing it and using it to describe things in that way helps people understand how these companies that we become dependent on end up controlling a marketplace and then doing things just decimating labor regulation. I mean, Proposition 22, now moving forward, trying it out in the blue state of California, see if you can pass a labor law like 22. And it passes. And then saying, oh, this is the model moving forward. We're going to try it in New York next. Says a lot about where we are. Jobs are already precarious. How many teachers do we know that have to drive Uber at night just to make ends meet and still be broke? And now you're telling me you're going to make it even harder on these people for no real reason other than you can't. But, but the libertarian streak in a lot of us, when we get angry, you know, when we think that every politician is corrupt, sure, I don't disagree with that notion at all. I don't think all government is good, apparently. But we need it to work for us. We do need regulation. We need public transportation to work for citizens. What better way to explain it to me? Yeah, yeah I, I agree, because it takes that idea of we need people look at these sort of convenience things and they're sold on like you can get the taxi when you want. You just use your phone. Well, there was a there was a reason, uh, you know, not all of it's as you said, not all of it's great. But there is a reason that this was a reg regulated thing. There's m many reasons it was a regulated thing. There's a reason why, for example, public transportation, you, it's absolutely crucial for citizens, plural with S, but if you only think about yourself as a, as a citizen with no plural, no S, then you, never, you, you don't make the jump. Like That's why it's a, a great way to explain it. I completely agree. Because that's the jump you have to make. You have to somehow uh, be able to get in touch with the fact that Unlike a libertarian sort of like baby dream, we all have to we all have to get we all have to work with each other, or it's just not going to work. Like the the stuff that you're talking about about you being able to do whatever you want whenever you want, that's like that's kids stuff, you know. That's that's not 
you know, you got you got to grow up a little bit. But brother Robert, isn't that the way people kind of look at the world right now? Like I want what I want it because I want it when I want it now. Yes. Right? I want a date. Swipe. Got a date. I want a booze delivered to my house. Bam. I got booze delivered to my house. <laughs> In California, I want weed delivered to my house. Ooh, I got, you know, whatever I want, yeah. when I want it, how I want it, because I want it now. I, we're old enough to remember a time where you had to wait to watch something on TV. Yeah. Oh, guess what? Friday the 13th, part four is coming on. What time? Remember that? What time? Now it's coming on whenever the fuck I want it to come on. And it's that mentality that is just, it's in us right now. It's in us right now, and it's hard to break free. And I say libertarian, and I'm not just talking about, you know, everybody's one friend that, you know, has a BMW M3 and thinks it's better than everybody. You sound, you sound like you're talking about somebody. You sound like you're talking about a specific person, though. Hey, that motherfucker just. Is I'm sure you walk outside the door. You're like, yeah, that asshole right there. Absolutely. Making Lexus payments think any better than me. Um, but like all jokes aside, like that's kind of streak of all about me runs through a lot of us because uh, not just because of COVID, but even beforehand. Sometimes we get isolated in this world, these echo chambers of us. And we forgot about the shared experiences of something as stupid as the last episode of Seinfeld. Yeah. Watching the Super Bowl, going to school the next day, talking. Um, you know, now all of our experiences are very solo, right? Like, I'm like, dude, I just watched a bunch of stupid movies last night. You're like, oh, that's funny. I read a documentary. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. That, that shared experience, I think, is, is important that we get back to because it also reminds us that we want things to work as a community. We want them to work right. I went to public school. Even though my public school that I went to was pretty good, it was pretty good because all the people involved wanted to work. I had never been to a school before where the people that worked in the office, their kids had graduated years before, but they lived in the community they liked the community they lived in. Sometimes even they had went to the same high school as well, and they felt that it was an honor to work at the school. The lunch ladies we had at the school had a small sandwich shop down the street. They were in the community. We knew them as this nice lunch lady that was sometimes hooking up if you didn't have any money. And, you know, remembered you when you, when you patronized their, their small sandwich shop down it was it was such a it was a communal vibe that kind of blew me away in a way because also when people got in trouble, like I said earlier, it's the way you handle that trouble. You're not trying to excommunicate the bad thing. You're trying to help the bad, not be bad. Uh, I know where I'm from, Richmond, California. Um, uh, a young man. Uh, was doing medication. So instead of kids going to detention, you had to meet with dude, talk about why you were angry, and then meditate on it. And they found that violence was going down in the schools because the kids, you know, had to literally talk about the problems. And it's like hood, hood, hood. <laughs> yeah, but that, that that breaks that breaks kayfabe. You know, that's you can't. That's a that's a creative idea. That that is out of character for 
you know, uh, our, 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 just the way that we operate. What, you said it before. Anything that's outside of, um, you know, the, the, the character that is, is, whether they're in a school, whether they're in city government or the zoning commission or whatever, uh, there's no, uh, there's no idea that this, that this isn't working and we don't have to do it this way. Mm-hmm. Ne- ne- never comes up. It never, it never comes up. It's, can you reimagine what your perfect world looks like? What's the first thing you should do in your perfect world, right? You had your magic wand. I got to work uh, with the unhoused, and eventually to shut me up, they're like, we're just going to give you a position you can do what the fuck you want to do because you, you're paying with all these problems. <laughs> What's the first thing I want to do? Well, I got these kids here. Motherfucker can't read. There's a lady that lives here. She used to teach. Can you give me some books? She says she want to do something with her life. Because she's sad. Let's get a little school going. Everybody's happy. Even the people that had nothing to do with these kids. They saw the kids walking to school. To the school. They're like, oh, man, that's awesome. Can you try to, to, you know, and that doesn't cost any money. That was all um, people volunteered, some people that taught volunteered workbooks, and some people volunteered pencils and backpacks. And the kids, they walk in, Robert, with like 20 feet. (laughs) (laughs) Round the corner. That's all it is, right? They just walk in 20 feet. But still, I want them to know what it's like. The, The teachers want them to know what it was like. And um, everybody gets to see that in that community, and it does change the vibe. It doesn't eliminate the violence. It doesn't eliminate the drug use. Right? Like you said, it's not a one-to-one thing. But, but if we want to create this socialist paradise, sometimes it starts with us. And we have more avenues than we think to get in and try. Yeah, I, I I'd like to highlight the work of one of our colleagues, Ray Krantz. She has put a lot of uh, time into a series on DelawareCall.com, which we we work as a sort of a nonprofit media thing uh, on uh, food justice. And mm. most most of the groups that she's um, she's spoken to who prepare and basically just give away meals in some fashion. Um, were started because uh, tail end of COVID or during COVID, a lot of communities were having problems, you know, getting food out. And they just said, you know, I, I cook for big families or this is something I can do. I'm just going to do it myself. And then they have groups of people coming and volunteering, giving them money. But it's groups of, you know, it's like a family and a few other people doing this kind of work. And, yeah, I mean, you have to, you have to decide in your mind, uh, you know, to break out of the character and you can do something that you enjoy. You mentioned the woman who's like, you know, she's she's having a significant depression. She's experiencing uh, being unhoused, but she was a teacher. So we can have kids come in and she could teach them English or teach them just whatever, a, a book or some sort of math or whatever. The the skills are there. It's a, it's a I feel weird saying it's a mindset, but it really is a mindset. 
of, of, of thinking about it just in a creative in a creative way that involves as many people as possible. I mean, sadly, that woman passed away recently. Uh, she passed away recently. She fell. She was living alone. She, she got a house. It was temporary, right? Permanent supportive housing is temporary. Like people understand. The name is deceiving. And uh, she fell and, uh, and hit her head and passed away. And I sadly never got a chance to see her place. I was in flux living myself. Um, definitely breaks my heart to even bring it up sometimes because uh, uh, it, it, was, it was like real time you're seeing change within people, even the kids' moms. You know, we're, we're starting to change a little bit too, seeing our kids want to learn, like want to learn. Um, it's a great way to build cadre, I really feel. Uh, if you're really serious about movements and movement building, I mean, it really starts with the community, the community that you want to build. Uh, and I always say we see nothing to the right. And I lived with a, a, a white conservative family for some time. And one thing I'll say about the right wing, those politics are so baked into everything that you do, to your church, to your community organization, to Little League. Like, it's there. It's there all the time. And, you know, back to, I don't know if we were on air or not, it's like, I don't want this club to be so exclusive that we're afraid of the church. They were afraid of coaching Little League sports. They were afraid of doing after-school tutoring programs. Like, all these things are important if you really want to build out a real movement, get yourself in the community. Like, I know Ben talked about DSA. I don't remember which DSA it was that was fixing people's taillights. If you're going to get fucked up by the police, it's not every black dude, but that one that ain't got no warrants for anything real, that got a busted taillight and expired tag, you might get lumped up. And that's not just a black dude, because I've been in parts of the country where there is no black dude that lump up. It ain't like police stop whooping people's ass. You think white people don't get their ass whooped in West Virginia? Because I got some bad news for you. You in Delaware, uh, you're not far from uh, the Appalachians. <laughs> I'm close, closer, closer than you are, anyway. But, you know, there's areas there where there's not a bunch of people that look like me and at least still thumping them cats up. Yeah, we just had an incident um, a couple a week or two ago. Video, again. Uh, it was I want, It was in the Midwest. Uh, it was Oklahoma, Missouri. Oh, the, the Arkansas? Arkansas? Oh, Arkansas, the, Arkansas. Yeah, yeah. 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 I mean, they were they. I mean, it was like again, it's just so grotesque and so uh, beat the shit out of that man. And I mean, you know what God. they weren't saying? I wish he was black. No, they're gonna thump. get thumped up. Yeah, right. If they want to thump your ass up, your ass is gonna get thumped up. And the thing is, if we constantly look at these things, racialized terms, we keep divorcing ourselves from our community, then we're going to live in these isolating bubbles. And all our politics are going to be reduced to is what we read, 
what podcast we watch, and who we angry to with. And that's not the world I want. I want to live in a world where I can go down to Delaware, get it taken to the dope breakfast spot. That's what I like. And we're going to talk shit. And we're going to meet people all day long in the dope breakfast spot and, and build out cadre in the community and, and try to get some real communal power so we can see things happen. We can get the reforms up. Jason, thank you so much for, for doing this. I really appreciate it. I had a, I had a good time. Um, once again, the piece in Sublation is Remembering Woodstock 99. Jason wrote it. Go read it. We're going to link to it. Uh, and just as importantly, uh, follow This Is Revolution uh, on YouTube. Uh, it's, it's really great. Uh, you know, we have academics. Uh, we, we have video essays, as we said. All kinds of, uh, all kinds of activists of, of all stripes talking about not only their work, but what, what informs their work. Um, and also, uh, we, had, uh, we had Pascal do his best Michael Brooks impersonation the other day, where he was doing, he did, if, if uh, how was, if, if somebody was, was, was producing uh, the Wu-Tang Clan. It was Norman Finkelstein produces the Wu-Tang Clan. Norman Finkelstein, Norman Finkelstein directing I the Wu-Tang Clan. fucking lost it. Incredible. <laughs> so if you want to hear cutting edge, <laughs> cutting edge Marxist theory, great activists talking about the work they do, and and Pascal doing a, a Norman Finkelstein impression talking about Ghostface Killer and the RZA, then uh, there you have it. <laughs> This is revolution. The pantyhose right over your face. <laughs> Just put put them all the way over your face. When I um, ran in, um, all the way over your face. <laughs> I ran into I ran into this guy Method Man, and this guy told me, I, "I'm not even going to start. I got to stop. We can't do it." Jason, I man, we did that. <laughs> I my wife heard me. My wife heard me laughing from downstairs. She's like, "What the fuck are you laughing at?" And I had to tell her, "I'm like, I, look, Pascal is doing an impersonation of the 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 famous Jewish uh, academic Norman Finkelstein. Uh, if he were producing in the studio all the members of the Wu Tang Clan, she's like, "What the? F-? She's like, what is your problem? Why do you? What is your? What's your problem?" I'm like, "It's funny." Throw it aside the W. Can you do the W with your hands? Can you? Can you? I need you to make a W with your hands. That's gonna be the woo. Make it fly like a bird. <laughs> they, they love it. They love these when you flash signs. They love it. They love. It's like a gang sign. They love the gang signs. The the youth, the young urban youth. I'm not oh, saying black. Me. My father, my father knew a black person. I know black people. I'm not trying to be a race. But yeah, I heard you have... those people do like gang signs. <laughs> Yeah, you guys, you guys did a, a very long form interview uh, with 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 Norman, and it was it was really something. That was uh, that was amazing. I, I I that was a few that was many months back, but I do recommend. Um, obviously, a lot of this stuff is 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 evergreen. I mean, a lot of the stuff, a lot of the work he's most famous for was done 20, 30 years ago. Um, uh, but uh, again, Jason, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Uh, and as we always say at the end of these left his best.